Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The fact that from our perspective, there is a tzimtzum, a quantum leap, a radical leap, a total concealment, that already goes contrary to the nature of Hashem, so to speak. The nature of Hashem is to be kind, is to be good. So the act of hiding, the act of hiding is a negative. Because ultimately the purpose is not the hiding. The purpose ultimately is that we should fill the space, fill the empty space with the infinite light. Through Torah and mitzvot we fill that empty space and we, fill it, we refill the empty space with the infinite light. The only difference is that now that it came about through our effort, the infinite light will not destroy us. We'll be able to absorb the infinite light and remain who we are, retain our identities, and yet our identity will be nothing other than, than receiving the, the infinite light. If Hashem would have revealed His infinite light from the beginning, that would have destroyed us. That would never even allow us to get off the ground. So then it's a kindness. What? It is a kindness. Yes, ultimately it's a kindness. But the fact of tzimtzum, the fact of concealment, that radical break, that radical leap, that is a negative, a negative thing. Yes, it has a positive purpose. But the fact that tzimtzum itself is not, that's not what God wants. The purpose ultimately is that we should overcome the tzimtzum. The ultimate goal is we'll overcome the tzimtzum, we'll overcome that quantum leap, we'll overcome that tzimtzum, that hiding, that concealment. There won't be any more concealment. The ultimate goal is there won't be any more concealment. When Mashiach will come, godliness will be revealed, the infinite light will be revealed. So the ultimate purpose is, is the re- revelation. Hiding is not the purpose. It's a, temporary, it's a temporary thing in order to enable us to get to the ultimate revelation. But the... The temporary tzimtzum, the temporary hiding and concealing is a negative. God doesn't like it. And that's the source of all evil. That's the source of everything that's negative. Blame it all on the tzimtzum. <laughs> so the tzimtzum itself is darkness. It's hiding. It's concealment. Isn't it the source of all physical things also? It's the source of the... that enables us, us to feel... The source of all physical things is the God's power to create. That's the source of all physical things. But the tzimtzum, without the tzimtzum, that's all we would feel is God's power to create. We wouldn't see the physical. The fact that we're able to see the physical is because of the tzimtzum. That's why we don't sense God's power to create. We sense, uh, you know, God is hidden. God is concealed. All we sense is, is the created being ourselves. But the tzimtzum itself is a, it's almost like a necessary evil of you. It's a necessary, in order to achieve God's purpose, you have to have a tzimtzum. Obviously he wants a tzimtzum and that's why we had a tzimtzum. But the tzimtzum itself is something negative. Maybe the word is not right to be called No, it's the source of evil. Tzimtzum itself Timsum itself is an ultimate expression of, of God. Only God has the power to hide and to create such a radical leap. But it's the source of evil. When godliness is hidden, that's the source of everything that's negative. 
the source of Adam's sin was the Timtum. That is the, the cosmic source of sin. And this is expressed in the Talmud. The Talmud says that on Rosh Chodesh we have to bring a chatas, a sin offering. Why do we have to bring a sin offering? Who sinned? Every Rosh Chodesh during the temple they would bring a sin offering. For what sin? To atone for what sin? It's a good bet. What? It's a good bet. A good bet. <laughs> <laughs> but a good, no, whose sin is this? Specifically, it refers to God's sin. God says, bring, me, bring for me a chatas, a sin offering. Why? Because I made the, smooth, the moon small. In the beginning of creation, the moon and the sun were equal. And the, the moon complained. So God made the moon small, and the moon refused to be consoled. So God says, finally, bring every Rishchidr, bring a sin offering to, to atone for the fact that I made the moon small. What does that refer to? That refers to the original Timtum. The original Timtum, when God shrunk the moon and hid and concealed the moon and eclipsed the moon, total eclipse, radical leap, quantum leap, total concealment, a cataclysmic event. This is, this is something that God says, bring an atonement because it's something negative. Yes, the, the point is positive and the purpose is positive. But the ultimate purpose is revelation. The ultimate purpose is when the infinite, when infinite light will permeate the empty space. There won't be any empty space. We'll sense the infinite within every point of time and every point in space and every point and aspect of life will feel the infinite, feel godliness. But in order to get there, you have to go through the symptom. So the symptom is like something you hold your nose and you do it because you have to do it. But it's not something you desire. It's not something you want. So Hashem says, bring an atonement for the sin that I, that I made the symptom, that I made the symptom, that I shrunk the moon, minimized the moon. So this is the source. This is the black hole. This is the source of everything that's negative, the ultimate source of evil, of all negativity, ultimately is all rooted in the symptom. It all comes from God's concealment. When God is not concealed, when godliness is not concealed, when godliness is revealed and manifest, then there is no room for evil. Evil melts away. It's only in the absence, in the seeming absence, our perceived absence of godliness that evil could flourish. It's like in, a, in an empty house, that's where all the demons gather. If the house is lived, then there's no room for them. So it's in the emptiness that allows the darkness and all the negative, negative forces, negative angels, negative energies to flourish in that absence, in that perceived absence, seeming absence of godliness. So when you say the emptiness, when you say the emptiness, is that like Toyo Vavoyu? Yeah, that, that, yes, that is Toyo Vavoyu. But Toyo also refers to the stage afterwards. That's the world of Toyo, the world of chaos. Right. That's, a, that's a latter stage. But the first stage was, was Choyshech. 
Right. The first stage was the the the, the, the tzimtzum. That was the first stage. Then afterwards came the world of Tayun and the world of Tikkun. That's already a later development. Okay, so now we get, we come back, we, we had a whole long introduction last time of the whole concept of Tzimtzum, and now we're going to learn inside. This was a very basic idea in Hasidism. This is what distinguishes the Hasidim and Misnagdim, those who oppose the Hasidic movement. And the whole argument is in the philosophy of Tzimtzum. Whole argument between the Alter Rebbe and the Vilna Goyen. Agoin Mivilna. What is the concept of Tzimtzum? Does Tzimtzum mean literally, or does Tzimtzum mean not literally, only figuratively? And here the Alter Rebbe goes in the middle of 924, in the light of what has been said above. In the above. light of what has been said above, that God's knowledge is wholly one with God Himself. For otherwise it would imply multiplicity in one who is perfect who is perfect unity. It is possible to understand the error of certain scholars in their own eyes, as for sure. For even those who have erred unwittingly are in need of atonement. Who erred and misrepresented in their study of the writings of the Arizal and understood the doctrine of Simpson, which is mentioned therein literally. In the writings of the Arizal, it is stated that in the beginning, before creation, the infinite light of the Ein Sof filled all space and there was no room for the creation of finite worlds. For inasmuch as worlds are by definition finite, whereas the divine light is infinite, there is no room within the infinite for finitude. How then did the finite worlds come into being? The Arizal explains this through the doctrine of Sinsen. The Ein Sof light departed example it ceased to be revealed so that the infinity was no longer in a state of revelation and all that remained revealed was the power of infinitude this power does, does allow for the, for the creation of finite worlds the scholars in their own eyes misunderstood this mere concealment to mean a literal departure you have many verses in the title which appears Clearly, that God fills up the whole world. We say, The whole world is filled with His glory. The heaven and the earth, I fill. And yet, the Arizal, who introduced to Judaism the concept, the revolution of the Arizal was he introduced the concept of Tim, that God, in order for God to create the world, creation is not an expression of God's creativity, but creation is, came about through God hiding Himself absenting himself. So, the Vilna Goyen took the, the verses in the Torah, he says, do not mean literally. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that God literally fills up the world. God doesn't fill up the world. God is removed from the world. God transcends the world. God is in heaven. God watches the world. He looks at the world. He knows the world. He watches the world. But he's not present. So they took what Arizal wrote literally. Tzimtzum means that God literally removed himself from the world. While the verses in the Torah, he said, does not mean literally that God fills the world. It means his glory fills the world. It means his gaze fills the world. It means his awareness, his knowledge, his divine providence, 
he's watching and aware of everything, that fills the world. But he himself, his essence, is removed from the world. And they also brought logical arguments. He says, how could you say that God is found in a toilet? God is everywhere. God is found in the house of idols. God is found in the house of ill repute. God is found in in an ugly, disgusting place. How can you say that? It's a a disrespect for God. If you say like the Alter Rebbe said, like the Baal Shem Tov said, the Hasidism said, that the verse in the Torah means literally. That God is everywhere. God fills the whole world, literally. There isn't a single point in this world that God does not fill. What the Arizal, the Arizal was speaking about Tzimtzum, that God removed himself, that doesn't mean literally. Not that he literally removed himself. Figuratively removed himself. It means we don't perceive him anymore. It's interesting that the Vilna Goyen students, we discussed last time, the Vilna Goyen student of Chaim Velazhner, after having seen the Tanya, agreed with the Alter Rebbe and went against his own teacher, the Vilna Goyen. He said, Tzimtzum is not literal. But he didn't mean it the same way the Alter Rebbe meant it. Because as we discussed, you have the essence of God, and then you have the emanation from God. God's light, the infinite light, is what emanates from God. Just like God is undefined, infinite, so too his light is a reflection of him. His light is also infinite. Just like the sun. You have the substance of the sun, the orb. And then you have the light of the sun. Everything in this world is an analogy to God. So you have the essence of God. And then you have God gives off light. A projection of God. A ray of God. A light from God. Or in Saf, Infinite light. So the question is, does symptom mean? Where did symptom happen? Did symptom happen in the essence of God? Or did symptom happen only in his light? That before the symptom, his light filled up an empty space? There was no space that was empty of his infinite light. And then as a result of the symptom, God removed his infinite light and created an empty space. Or there was symptom within God himself. God literally removed himself, so to speak. And even if you say there was symptom within God or there was symptom within the light, does that mean literally he removed himself or only the perception of him was removed? Not literally. So you have... Okay, so it's not simple. The Vilna Goyen says no. And it's based also early Kabbalists, early students of that reason. Some of them said, learn literally. Symptom means literally. God removed his essence. God's essence is not found in the toilet. A place, you're not allowed to say a holy thing, you're not allowed to think a holy thought, you're not allowed to bring a holy book inside a bathroom. So, you think you're going to bring God into the bathroom? Well, that no, God's creativity, God's, God's sense of creating everything at all times is also not in the bathroom, and it has to be, or otherwise, no. the bathroom wouldn't be. No, so they say, very good question. No, it's a very good question, Sarah. No, but they learn that just like God's divine providence is everything. God's divine providence, he's, he's like the king sitting in the palace, but he's watching everything from the palace. He's watching and he notices everything that goes on. So God's gaze co- does cover the bathroom, covers everything. Everything is divine providence. There's nothing in this world that goes un- unnoticed. Everything, God notices everything and he rewards everything and he punishes everything. Everything is divine providence. So his gaze, and that's what the verse means, his glory fills the earth. Not he fills the earth. His glory, his gaze, his interest, his divine providence, his knowledge, so, so too with creation. 
they say that creation, creation is something that God creates with, with his power, with his energy, with his creative energy. It's not God's essence. God's God, a reflection of God. A reflection of God, the energy that reflects from God, has the ability to create. So it's not the essence of God. Just like God's gaze encompasses all of the world, so too God's creative energy creates the world all the time. But it's not the essence of God. But it still has to change God, whether it's creative or not. Yeah, but the Alter Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe learns, Alter Rebbe learns, and this is a novelty, that creation is not, doesn't come from God's reflection. Creation comes from God's essence. Because, as he explains, especially he explains elsewhere in the Tanya, what feels the most natural? What's the most natural thing in the world? Self. Self. Ego. It feels so natural. It feels so... And yet, there's nothing more unnatural. <laughs> there's nothing more unnatural. What it feels so natural to us, there's nothing more unnatural. Because everything in the world has a source. Where does this feeling of self come from? I always was here, I always will be here, I'll never die, I always existed. This absolute sense of self, no justification for the self, no rhyme, no reason, no source, no root, no cause. I am, period, end of story. And that consumes my whole life. There's no room for anything else. I don't have room for any... It's so unnatural. We are the only creature in the whole universe that has an ego. To that extent. Everyone else senses a source. We have this total, absolute sense of self, ego, independence. It's what appears to us to be natural. If you think about it, it's the most unnatural thing in the world. But he made us like this. So where does it come from? It only comes from the essence of God. Because the only the essence of God, the essence of God is the ultimate I, the ultimate ego, the true ego, the true I. There is nothing but God. God is an absolute reality. That is the ultimate natural reality. There is no other reality. God invested His essence in us. That He created us with that feeling of natural, that natural feeling of self of I. So this is a revolutionary understanding which Dr. Rebbe explained that creation is something that comes from the essence of God. And therefore, since God has to constantly create the toilet and constantly create everything that exists, so God's essence is everywhere. There's no space empty of God. Literally. And then Dr. Rebbe takes a step further and he says that the Tzimtzum he takes even a step further than Rechaim Velazhner. Rechaim Velazhner said that the Tzimtzum was within God, but it doesn't mean literally that God removed himself. It's only our perception. The Alter Rebbe says, no, within God there was no Tzimtzum. The essence of God, there's no change. There's no Tzimtzum. God is present and is manifest and there's no hiding. You can't hide the essence of God. And he brings a proof. What's his proof? That little children, everyone knows God. The simple Jew, you ask him, how is your health? How is your business? Baruch Hashem. No good. <laughs> but Baruch Hashem, thank God. Everything he does is Baruch Hashem. Because God is everywhere. God is not concealed. 
God is not just an abstraction. God is not just intellectual. We know God with our kishkis. We know God with every fiber of our being and every bone in our body. You ask a Jew, any Jew, on a regular day, he writes a letter. He's writing about the weather. Baruch Hashem. How does, what does God have to do with anything? God has to do with everything. So when it comes to God, there is no symptom. There is no hiding. God's essence is manifest. There is no change. Just like He was manifest before the symptom, He's manifest after the symptom. There is absolutely no change. And the simplest Jew knows it equally with such clarity, with such depth, the same, just like the greatest tzaddik. He knows it with his whole being, with every fiber of his being, every bone of his body. He just knows God. So in that, there is no symptom. The whole symptom was only in the light, in the projection of God. That before the symptom, God's light permeated all of reality and God's reflection was manifest and like light pointed to its source. After the symptom, the light was like covered up. In this empty space, there's no light. Dark. We don't perceive it. Not literally. Not literally. The symptom is not literally. We don't perceive it. It's there. It's like you close your eyes. What happens to your eyesight? It's there. But it's not active. It's there. It's like when you remember something. It's etched into your memory. And then you think about something else. What happened to it? It didn't disappear. But right now, I'm not thinking about it. I don't have the words for it. I don't have, it's, not, it's not conscious. But in one split second, I can, I can think about it. I can summon it because it's right there. It's here. It didn't go anywhere. It didn't disappear. So even within the empty space, God's infinite light is still present. Nothing changed. From the, infi- from the infinite light's perspective, from God's light. But we don't perceive it. We're not conscious of it. There's no vessels. That, that's what creates the finite. It's, the, it's the, 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 the God's concealment, God's symptom that created an empty space that allowed for something finite to come. Before that, there was no space for anything finite. The infinite light filled up all space. There was no space for anything finite. God allowed something finite by, by, by hiding himself that we shouldn't perceive it. That's what we call it. Empty matter, the dark light, empty time, everything that is... Yeah, Black hole. All of that is still finite. That's part of the finite. That's right. the creation. Right. That's just, I mean, however many parts that's of creation that's still all the finite parts. So the Al-Tarebi learned that symptom does not mean literally. God's present essence fills all the world. Not only God's essence fills all the worlds, even God's infinite light fills all the worlds. Everything, really, you can find the infinite in everything. In every point in time, in every point in space, in every human experience, in every human event, including negative events including even sin, you can find the infinite. Because how we're, by doing teshuva, when you take that negative experience and you do teshuva and you transform the negative into positive and you reach even a higher level than you can through mitzvot, you're revealing the infinite in that experience. So the finite is a kalipa. No, 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 no. Find out, no, no. Klippa, klippa is different. Find out is not Klippa. A shell is negative. Find out is not negative. Find out is not negative. God forbid. A Klippa is, is, is a distortion. But finite doesn't, doesn't have to be negative. Finite is a creation. God creates. It's God has the ability to create something finite. 
something from nothing. Finite from infinite is something from nothing. Finite is a limited thing. Yes. That, that's the idea, that's the definition of creation. Something that doesn't exist in its source. Because the source is infinite. So there, there is no finite there. There's no finite in the infinite. It's infinite. So that's God's ability to create something from nothing. God has the ability to, out of the infinite, create finite. Take energy and suddenly come up with matter. Transform energy into matter. Take from the infinite and transform it into something finite. Only God has the ability to do that. Something that doesn't exist in the source. That's God's ability. So that, that's not klipa. That's on the contrary. It's the ultimate expression of God's creativity. Klipa is a distortion. Klipa is negative. Klipa is evil. Finite is not evil. God forbid. Finite is not evil. I thought, I thought there was klipa that was neutral. There's four types of klippas. There's three that are absolutely evil, uh, irredeemable, and then there is a shell that's neutral, that's like half and half. Majority evil, but it has the potential has the potential to be elevated. All the kosher things, all the things that are kosher, they, they are from that shell. If you just eat it or just indulge in it, it's, it's a negative. But it has the potential if you eat it properly and you have the right intentions and you take that energy and you use it to serve Hashem, then it has the potential to be elevated. That's all. That's why it's not 100% evil. It has, it has some light to it. It's a little, it's a sishu a, a, a see-through shell. You can see through it. A little light could penetrate. You can see the inside of the fruit. You can see the fruit. The peel doesn't cover up in the fruit. It's like a grape. You see the inside. Versus a nut. Sin, chet, is numerical value of egos, a nut. Because the shell of the nut blocks, doesn't allow. You can't see the fruit. So a negative, a sin, doesn't allow, the neshama doesn't allow the soul to come through. But something that's kosher, all kosher means is it has the potential to be elevated. It doesn't happen automatically. If you eat it properly in the right context, then you could. But if not, then it becomes a degrading experience and it becomes a negative experience. But to get back to the tzimtzum. So we have four, four different approaches. Three Jews, four opinions. Tzimtzum. The Vilna Goyen says Tzimtzum happened in the essence of God. God contracted Himself, removed Himself. And Tzimtzum means literal. His own student, Abhayim Valajna, agreed and disagreed. He agreed that the Tzimtzum is in the essence of God. God removed Himself. But he disagreed with his teacher. It doesn't mean literally to remove Himself. It means, means from our perception. Then you have the third opinion that says no. The Tzimtzum was in the light, not in the essence of God. And then you have the fourth opinion that even the Tzimtzum in the light, and this is the philosophy of Hasidism, this is the whole philosophy of Hasidism that totally revolutionized the way a Jew approaches Hashem, that even the tzimtzum in the infinite light is also not literally. He didn't even remove the infinite light. From the infinite light's perspective, from the Orin Sav, nothing changed. The Orin Sav fills the empty space just like it's filled before the tzimtzum. And therefore, till today, you can find Hashem in everything. 
You can find Hashem in music. You can find Hashem in storytelling. You can find Hashem in eating. You can find Hashem when you walk down the marketplace. You can find Hashem every single aspect of life. You can find the infinite. Everywhere. Everywhere. There's no space empty of it. This is the whole foundation of the Hasidic movement, the whole Hasidic philosophy, which is 180 degrees different, diametrically opposed to the Mesnagdim, to those who oppose the Hasidic God, who believe that no, God is transcendent, and God removed himself, and God is inapproachable. The only way to approach God is through, through studying Torah. There is no other way. And a simple person who can't study Torah is, is basically, basically out of the picture. Because he has no way to really connect with God. So this was the underpinning, the philosophical underpinnings to the very sharp argument and different approaches to life with all the ramifications. It has tremendous ramifications and implications. Ideas have consequences. It's a big difference if you say Timtum literally or Timtum not literally. The implications are the Hasidic, the whole Hasidic way of life. The joy Finding Hashem in everything. Finding Hashem even in the act of eating. Finding Hashem in every single aspect of your life. Sensing Hashem in everything. Revealing Hashem in everything. Revealing the infinite. Having a constant sense of mission. Not only when I'm studying Torah, but everything that I do. Constant sense of mission. Constant sense of connection with Hashem. 24-7. Not only when I'm studying Torah. Even when I'm eating or sleeping or drinking. King Solomon says, Kol l'shem shemayim. All your actions should be for the sake of heaven. As the mission says in Ethics of Our Fathers, King Solomon says, With all your ways you should know God. A Jew knows God with everything that he does. He finds Hashem in every, every part of his life. This was the, the Hasidic way. This was the Hasidic way. Okay, learn inside. Um, that the Holy One, blessed be He, middle of 925. The Holy One, blessed be He, removed Himself in His essence, Hashem forbid from this world, i.e. that He literally removed His presence rather than merely concealing it, and only guides from above with individual providence all the created beings which are in the heavens above and on the earth below. They thus envisage Hashem as a king who sits in His palace, Although his gaze extends beyond its confines, the king himself is not to be found there. In the same way, so they would say, Hashem gazes from above on all created beings which are found, heaven forfend, outside his palace. Now, apart from the fact that it is altogether impossible to apply the doctrine of Timsim literally, for that would be an instance of corporeal phenomena, to the Holy One, blessed be he, who is set apart from them by infinite myriads of separations, one who is subject to the characteristics of a physical body can be said to undergo actual symptom and to depart. Previously he was here, and now he is not. It goes without saying that this cannot be ascribed to Hashem, who is infinitely removed from the phenomena of corporeality, apart from all the... One second. So even, but even they, even of course they know that God is not physical. They didn't mean that God literally walked out of the room. That's not what they meant. What they meant is, when you talk about something spiritual, what do you mean something spiritual occupies space? I mean, 2 plus 2 is 4 doesn't occupy space. 2 plus 2 is 4 is in China, and 2 plus 2 is 4 is in Israel, and 2 plus 2 is 4 is in Las Vegas. I mean, it's, it's a concept. Something spiritual transcends time and space. 
So what do you mean when you talk about spirituality occupying space and removing it from a certain space? But what it means is that everything, everything has its place. 2 plus 2 is 4 cannot mingle with 3 plus 3 is 6. It's two, two different worlds. Everyone has its space. When it comes to something spiritual, it's very clear everything has its place. And the two shall never ever mix. The two shall never ever mingle. And that's why in the heaven, there is no mingling. In heaven, everything is clear. There's hell and there's heaven. And the two shall not mingle. You can't mingle it. It's impossible. It's like, it's like, it's like uh, oil, oil and, uh, and water. It, it can't mingle together. It doesn't mix. In heaven, there's no mixture. In heaven, there's no confusion. In heaven, there's no there's clarity. Everything has its space. So when they said that God removed himself, what they mean is, they don't mean physically that God walked out of the room, that God is a physical, human, physical being that he walked... Uh, what they mean is that God's essence transcends, His transcendent essence has, it does, is not found in the world of finite, in the world of time and space, in the world, in our physical world. God is, transcends this world. So He's not found in this world. He's separate from the world. He's above the world. He transcends this world. So He cannot mix with this world. He can't be in this world. But that makes that finite. That, that, that makes the infinite finite. That's what the Rebbe is asking. But again, we have to be very subtle. That they don't mean that God physically walked out of the room. What they mean is that infinite cannot mix with finite. Infinite is infinite and finite is finite. So God transcends the finite. So you can't say that God is present in the finite. God's essence is removed. God removed His essence from the finite. He created an empty space which, which allowed for a finite world. God Himself is infinite, the infinite. So God's infinite cannot mix, is not found, is not present in that world. Just like your brain. Your brain is found in, in uh, your mind is found, found in your brain. It's not, it's, it's not found in your liver. Because it's, it's found in a certain... It could express itself in this world, in the world of mind, and it can't express itself through, through a pinky. So you have... Everything has its space. So the infinite transcends the finite. So God is not found. That's what they mean. In a subtle way, in a spiritual way, that God can, is not found in finite. But Al-Tarebi asks what you're saying. Al-Tarebi says, but how can you place any limitation on God? Even a, subtle, even a subtle sense of walking away or removing himself. How can you say that God is not found in the, in the finite? God's whole infinite essence and infinite light is found in the finite. And you must say that. Because otherwise, otherwise you're making a limit on God. How can you make a limit on God? God has no limit. So you can't limit the infinite to being infinite. The moment you limit the infinite to being infinite, that infinite cannot be finite, that alone is a limitation. So it's like, it's like a body. It's like, it's, it would be the equivalent of someone walking out the room. Could God walk out of the room? Could, so to say that the God's infinite essence is above and transcends the world of finite, and he can't be present in the world of finite, it's the equivalent of saying that, that you walked out of the room and you left. And you can't say that about God, because God is everywhere. There's no space empty of God. Now, 
The Altarebi himself realizes that his questions are not earth-shattering questions. Because he's talking about very great rabbis who believe this. He's not talking about little children, great Kabbalists, great rabbis. The Altarebi himself may have been tempted to agree with them. His arguments are not very strong arguments for the simple reason that you can't ask any question on God. You're asking a question on God? You're straight-jacketing God? You're tying up God with, the, with your logical questions? God created the logic in the first place. So he's not bound by that logic. He's not bound by that logic. God is beyond any... So they say that, on the contrary, it's more respectful for God to say that the tzimtzum is literal. That God removed himself. I, it doesn't make sense logically, so... What else is new? God is not bound by logic. That's their, their, their approach. Out the Rebbe, not accept that. Not because, not because they don't have a very strong foundation, but because he heard from his teacher and he heard from the Baal Shem Tov that this is the correct, this is what really happened, that the Tzimtzum was not literal. And therefore, he explains it logically, but not that the logic forces us dictates to us, forces us that God must do it this way. God doesn't have to do it this way. God can do it any way he wants. God has to do it this way. Tzimtzum not literally. If God wanted, he could have done Tzimtzum literally. No one is arguing that. The Altarebbe doesn't argue that either. God wants, he's omnipotent, he can do whatever he wants. He can do, he can do Tzimtzum literally. And it, it makes more sense. And it's more respectful to God. A, he's not in the toilet. He's sitting in the palace and watching. B, God has to create the world each and every moment his essence has to has to be involved in creating the world every moment it, it, it's, it's, it's almost an insult to God we create something we walk away from it but God when he creates something Nebuch it's so weak it's so it's so insubstantial that he has to constantly create why couldn't God invigorate it and allow it to last on its own so you can't you can't use you can't use logical arguments on God. On the contrary, logic would tell me it's more respectful to say that God is not bound by logic. But we find from the Torah that God created the world in a way that He wanted it to be logical. He wanted it to make sense. Not because God is bound by logic. But that's why God created logic in the first place. Why did God create logic? Because He wants us finite human beings to be able to relate to God. So everything he did, he concentrated within logic so that it should make sense. Not that he's bound by logic, but he wanted, he wanted everything to be logical. He wanted everything has to make sense. So like this, we can relate to God. Because if you talk about the essence of God, which is undefined, and there's no logic, and there's no questions, so then, then we can't even begin to relate to God. We, we can't even begin to have a relationship with Him. We're not speaking the same language. We are finite. This is our frame of reference. A whole entire frame of reference is time, space, logic, concepts, numbers. This is our frame of reference. We don't have any other frame of reference. Words, letters. This is our whole universe. So we're able to communicate with God because God concentrated himself in a world that makes sense, in a world that fits into our mind. So therefore, therefore, since we know from the Torah, we know that God wanted it that way, 
Therefore, the Alter Rebbe is bringing proofs and logic and saying, well, logically it doesn't make sense. How can you say that God removed himself? That God's infinite essence is not found in the space, in time and space, in this, in this finite world. But it's not that the logic really proves anything. It's just that we know from the Torah that God wanted everything to be logical. Therefore, once we know that, then you're bringing proofs from logic. That since you see the way the world that God created, the, God created the world in a logical way, therefore it has to make sense. So logic tells us that creation has to happen every moment. Because it's not like us. When we create something, we can walk away. Because we didn't create anything. We just changed the form, the shape. That's all we did. So we can walk away. But God is doing more than changing the form. God is creating it. Something from nothing. God is creating something finite from something infinite. Something that doesn't exist in its source. So God has to constantly create it. Otherwise, we revert back to our natural state, which is absolute nothingness. As if we never existed. Totally erased. Never existed. That's A. And logic tells us that God didn't remove himself. God's infinite essence and infinite light is found within the empty space. Nothing changed. And if you look, if you'll search, you'll uncover the infinite at every point in time, at every point in space, in every human experience. That's the mission of a Jew. The mission of a Jew is to elevate the sparks and to reveal the infinite light in every Call the kudah and the kudan, every point and every aspect, every detail of life to find Hashem. Okay, can I continue? Thus, they themselves admit that Hashem's knowledge and providence extended to this physical world. And perforce, his knowledge of them does not add plurality and innovation to him, for he knows all by knowing himself. For Hashem's knowledge of created beings not to come from knowing himself then it would be correct to say that this knowledge adds plurality and innovation to him. Previously, he did not know them, and now he does. However, since plurality and innovation cannot possibly apply to Hashem, he must perforce know them through his knowledge of himself. Thus, as it were, his essence and being and his knowledge of created beings are all one. Since Hashem's knowledge and providence extend to this world, and since his knowledge is one with him, it follows that Hashem himself is to be found within this physical world. Unlike the king who sits in his palace and gazes beyond its walls, the king himself is to be found wherever his providence and knowledge are found. So since God and his knowledge and his gaze are one, so since his, even they admit that God's gaze and God's knowledge is everywhere, so God is everywhere. He himself is everywhere. There's no space empty of him. True enough, it is only through divine service that this world may be transformed into a place in which Hashem is revealed. Nonetheless, Hashem is present in this lowly corporeal world, which feels itself to exist independently of him to the same degree as he is present within the higher spiritual worlds. And this is what is stated in Tikkuni. Tikkun 57. There is no place devoid of him, neither in the upper worlds nor in the lower worlds. Thus we find it explicitly stated in Tikkun Zohar that Hashem himself is to be found within the lower worlds, the lowest of which is this physical world. So the Zohar states clearly that God himself, just like he's found in the upper worlds, 
he's equally found the same measure, the same extent he's found in the lower worlds. A God permeates time and space and every aspect of existence. He's totally permeated with God. And in the portion of the Zohar called Ra'aya Menachemna or Parshat Tikhas, we read, He grasps all and none can grasp him. He encompasses all worlds and no one goes out from his domain. He fills or permeates all worlds. He binds and unites a kind to its kind, upward with lower. And there is no closeness in the four elements of which this corporeal world is comprised, except through the Holy One, blessed be He, when He is within them. It is only through His power that these four inherently contradictory elements are bound together. Until here are the words of Ryan So he says that God grasps the whole world. We, the worlds, cannot grasp God. But God contains the worlds, but the worlds do not contain God. This is a big difference. God contains within himself all of the worlds, the upper worlds and the lower worlds, all contained within God, in the essence of God. But the worlds do not contain him, because the worlds are limited. The worlds are finite. But God's essence is found throughout the worlds. Not only the upper worlds, but even the lower worlds. Uh, no one can grasp it. Means that there is no no one, even amongst all the supernatural intelligences, the incorporeal creatures of the higher spiritual worlds, whose apprehension of divinity is superhuman. Who can grasp, by means of this intellect, the essence of and and being of the Holy One, blessed be He. As it is written in Tikkunim, He is hidden from all the spiritual worlds, which are themselves hidden from physical creatures. And no thought can grasp you at all. The point being made here is that Hashem cannot be grasped even by the heavenly thought processes of the hidden worlds. There is, however, Yet another concept inherent in the world grasp, the ability to adhere and thereby affect a change. Thus, the fact that one cannot grasp Hashem also means that, that nothing can affect a change on him. When a person makes something, he will inevitably be grasped by the object of his creation. He will undergo changes in accordance with particular demands of the object which he is producing. In the case of Hashem, however, this creation of all existing beings causes no change in him whatever. They do not hold him, so to speak, in their grasp. From this point of view, the creation of the lower worlds is even more telling. For the creation required a greater degree of tzimtzum and enclosement. Nevertheless, they cause absolutely no change in him. They too do not grasp it in the outer rewards. Okay, so what's he saying? That, that even the thought, 
even you can't grasp God even through meditation, even through higher levels of consciousness, even through love, even through mind-blowing experiences, spirituality. We simply don't have the tools to, to grasp God because we are not made of the substance of God. God's essence remains totally beyond us. We are not God. We are created. What? At this stage. No, well, we are created by we are created by God, so we are not the substance of God. God is, you know, God is not finite. We are created finite beings, so we are. We don't have the tools like a blind person. Try explaining to a blind person what sight is like. Someone who's born blind, he doesn't know what you're talking about. He doesn't have the tool. He doesn't doesn't have the the sight. He only has four senses. He doesn't have five senses. So you can talk to him from today till 120 years, he'll never ever be able to grasp what sight is. Because he doesn't have it in there. We do not have God, we're not God. God created us something from nothing. From infinite, he made finite. Something that doesn't exist in its source. So we don't have the tools, we, we, we cannot grasp infinite. We can only grasp words, concepts, letters, uh, our whole frame of reference is very finite. So we cannot really grasp God. We don't have the tools what it takes to grasp God. So we can, do not contain God. But God contains us. God's essence contains us. Every aspect, every detail, every part of it is all contained, contained within God. Are we going to be able to grasp that at the time of Mashiach? We'll grasp that we can grasp. When you grasp that you can grasp, then you're, you're in, good, in a good place. And when Job... I mean, when he was asking all these questions of Hashem, and, um, I mean, none of his questions got answered. Just Hashem revealed his countenance to him, and then he understood. Is that what's going to happen? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, there are many, many stages. The rabbis talk about many stages. The times of Mashiach, the resurrection, and then the year 7,000, millennium. Each one is a deeper level where we become one with God, we become more nullified. You know, the Rebbe once told the story that there was a, there was a curfew in Russia, there was a curfew. And the Hasidim were having a fabrengen. It was a Hasidic holiday, and they were together, fabrengen. And they went home, one of the Hasidim went home very late from the fabrengen, like 4 a.m., you could be shot if you found in the street. So the sentry stops him, he says, who's going? What's your name? And his response was, Bittel is going. Bittel means self-nullification, no ego. That became his whole essence. His whole essence became, who am I? What's my name? Bittel. I am nothing. That is who I am. That's my identity. My identity is not ego. Not self, ego. Selfishness, self-centeredness, self-absorption. What is my whole being? My whole being, my whole ego, what's my name? That I am nothing. That, that's, the time, that's the time of Mashiach. We'll be, we will remain independent beings, but our whole being will be permeated. That's why the Rambam uses very judiciously, he uses the words of Isaiah. Mashiach will come, there will be a flood of knowledge, it will cover the earth like the ocean covers the ocean bed. What does it mean the ocean covers the ocean bed? Because on one hand, when you look at the ocean, you don't see the ocean bed. You just see the water. But on the other hand, there is an ocean bed. 
But the ocean bed will be all about absorbing and receiving the water. All you'll see is the water. The ocean bed represents the mind, the intellect, the ego, the self. So there will be a world. The world won't be nullified. God won't destroy the world when Mashiach comes. We're not all going to go to heaven. Mashiach is in this world. But our whole being will be permeated with what? With the knowledge of God, with the knowledge that we don't understand. With the knowledge that I am nothing. That all there is is God. That becomes my identity. That is who I am. That's my name. That's Mashiach. So we become one with God without destroying our identities, without destroying our natural world. There'll be newspapers and there'll be time and there'll be space and there'll be content. We'll still remain finite. But the whole finite, the whole being, the whole I will be permeated with the sense of the infinite. It'll almost be like a paradox. If this is the way it is and there's no way to change Hashem, why, is, why do we pray that? Why do we ask Hashem for changes of things? Why don't we just ask for understanding? The only change can be within us, and the only change can be an understanding, because you cannot change Hashem. So why are we praying? It's, you know, the, the, the Vilna, someone came to Vilna Goyen to get a to get a, um, an approbation for his book. So he looks at it, looks at it, and he says, wow, such novelty, such a novelty, such a novelty. And he's so flattered. He says, really, which, which novelty is he really? He says, listen, they took wood and they turned it into paper. They took shmatas and they turned it into paper. You took paper and turned it back into shmatas. He says, that's a, that's a novelty. <laughs> um, but the... When Hashem is able, when we say Hashem doesn't change, the ultimate meaning of that is, the ultimate meaning of that is, that even when there's a world where He's hidden, and even the world where He's concealed, and even the world where there are obstacles, and yet, at the end of the day, that world comes to the realization of the infinite. That's the ultimate meaning Hashem never changes. That no matter what circumstances you put Hashem in, even if you hide Him and you conceal Him and you put obstacles in opposition, ultimately Hashem triumphs. Ultimately the realization and the awareness of Hashem ultimately penetrates and breaks through and transforms and touches everything and everyone. That's the ultimate meaning and Hashem doesn't change. If Hashem doesn't change means that Hashem could only be manifest in a world where everything is clear and Hashem lives in His own world, that's what the Vilna Goyen is saying. That's, that's, that's another words of saying, Tzimtzum is literally. That Hashem exists in a perfect world, in a pristine world, in a world that's unchanging, in a world that's divine, a world that's eternal. But our world, our... our um, our, right, our mess that we live in and our um, very clumsy and very uh, messy, our messy world that we live in. That's, this, this is too messy. It's too human. Hashem is perfect. Hashem is perfection. No change. He's not affected. He's not changed. Pristine. Eternity. We're just a blip. We're nothing. But that's only our perception. 
but. It's not just perception. Hashem, when you say Hashem doesn't change, it means even in a world where there's a perception of independence, and even in a world where there is messiness, and even in a world, in our world, the human world, and yet the human being on their own will come to the realization, will choose, willingly choose, and deliberately and consciously and deliberately come to the realization of the truths of Hashem. Hashem doesn't force Himself on us. He doesn't impose Himself on us. He's not a dictator. It's a marriage. It's willing. And He waits for us to want it. He waits for us to come around. And He waits for us to realize that this is what we want. That's what I said. We're the ones that change. Yeah, but that's the ultimate. It is our understanding that But that's changes. the ultimate revelation. That's the ultimate meaning when you say Hashem doesn't change. We are the ultimate expression of Hashem's truth. That even in a messy world, and even in a dark world, and even in this world, nevertheless, the same truth comes out. It's like the analogy again with Einstein. When Einstein is able to take his brilliant concept, and he's able to communicate it to a student that has no connection with him. And he's able to concentrate his, 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 his infinite understanding relative to the student. And he's able to concentrate it in a simple analogy and parable that the student is able to grasp. And the student is able to digest. And the student is able to meditate in it and reflect on it. And after 40 years of chewing on it and chewing on it until finally the student comes to the original understanding of Einstein. That's the ultimate proof. That's the ultimate meaning when you say it doesn't change, that truth doesn't change. The same truth that exists in Einstein's brain, that same truth exists in this farmer's brain. Because Einstein is able to bridge the gap, is able to leapfrog, is able to communicate without diluting, to concentrate the whole entire concept into the simple analogies and similes that the simple farm simple mind could grasp but everything is there it's all there it's just it's a seed it's a kernel it's a concentration symptom also means concentration it's all there it's all concentrated within the time and space within this messiness within this finite within everything is concentrated God's infinite is concentrated there and it's up to us to reveal it and to digest it and to work our way back and then you reveal the ultimate unity that God doesn't change because no matter where you come from, no matter which angle you come from, all roads lead to Jerusalem, you're going to come to the same realization, you're going to come to the same infinite. The same infinite awareness. Even from a point of hiddenness, of hiding, of concealment. So this, that's why prayer is so important. Our service to God is so important. It's very real because we are the only ones who reveal the fact that God doesn't change. God's reality is so real, so absolute. It's 100%. It penetrates and permeates. There isn't one point. Not 99.9%. There isn't one single point in the universe. Even a universe that appears to be opposite of God. Even a universe that appears to be disconnected from God. Even a universe that appears to be messy and coarse and distorted. Even that universe ultimately, ultimately, ultimately comes to the same realization. In the laboratory, the scientists are coming to the same realization today. Is coming to the realization of the truth that the Torah has been speaking about for thousands of years. This is the ultimate revelation of Mashiach. This is the ultimate revelation of God's truth, of God's reality, of the meaning of Ani Hashem Lashis. God doesn't change. God doesn't change doesn't mean that God is, is, exists in some pristine, eternal reality that, that doesn't get involved in the messiness of this world. On the contrary, 
that God doesn't change, even in a world that's so messy and coarse and grubby, even here, God's essence ultimately shines and ultimately penetrates, even after science and enlightenment that totally, and darkness, that totally clouded up on God and totally concealed God and rejected God and rebelled against God. The scientists in the laboratory, modern physics, came to the same realization that modern physics today sounds more and more like the Kabbalah. That's the ultimate, that's the Mashiach. That's the ultimate revelation of God's truth. That's the ultimate revelation of Ani Hashem, that God doesn't change. That's the meaning God doesn't change. Because God's reality is so real that it's, it's, it penetrates all of reality. So when a Jew prays, a human being who's messy, who has difficulties, and has to wrestle, and has struggles, and, and that Jew musters faith, and trust, and hope, and optimism, that's the ultimate revelation of godliness. Which is why prayer brings miracles. When you pray sincerely in a heartfelt prayer, miracles happen because you're revealing the infinite. You're filling the empty space. You're revealing, you're bringing down the infinite light. You're revealing God's essence, God's truth. And therefore, you're shaking the world to its very foundation. And therefore, miracles happen. And things change. And things happen. When godliness is manifest, it brings along with it all blessings. All the blessings come with it. So it's very real. Prayer is real. Our service is real. Our overcoming difficulties are real. Our struggles are real. Our um, achievements are real. It's very real. And everything, everything depends on it. That's why Mashiach is the ultimate. The ultimate purpose of everything is Mashiach. Because everything rides on that. If God is real, if you say Mashiach can't come, or if it's a possibility Mashiach won't come, then, then God is not real. Then that's the change. That is the ultimate change. That God could only exist in some pristine in Jerusalem and Muncie and Karnais in some pristine environment. But in the messy, grubby, real world, God can't exist there. That's the ultimate change. That's the ultimate change. He's saying that God could only exist in some eternal, blissful reality, but not in real life. Mashiach tells us, no, that even in the messy world and even in a world which is, appears to be the antithesis of godliness and coarse and materialistic and etc finite and even in this world will come to the realization will scream out and shout out and willingly and joyously accept upon themselves the sovereignty that's the job of the Jew that's the job of the Jew it's, it's to reveal that yeah that's the job of the Jew I don't know if in Psalm 115 it says the heavens are the heavens of the Lord like 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 Avram said before, he said, the God of heaven, who took me out, and then the God of earth. And then he mentions the God of earth, because Avram says Avram knew in the beginning God was only the God of heavens. No one knew no one knew about God. God was an abstraction. Yes, in in, in the walls of the yeshiva of shame and aver the pristine walls and the pristine environment on the Temple Mount and Jerusalem over there they acknowledge God but in the real world in the marketplace in the marketplace of Nimrod in the marketplace of the king and the emperor and Tower of Babel and his father Terah in the business world in the real world God was totally forgotten and it's only through Avram Avinu's efforts that he made he popularized he publicized the awareness of God so he made God the, not only the God of heaven, but also the God of earth that came about through his efforts. 
he communicated it, and, and you're right. So yes, absolutely. That's why we play an integral role. That's the role of the Jew. The role of the Jew is to publicize. We are God's publicists. They tell a story. Um, there was a rabbi, in, um, a rabbi in a plane. He was traveling, and suddenly the plane experienced turbulence. And the, um, and the plane was shaking very violently and uh, people were afraid. And so, everyone, so someone runs over to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, why don't, you, why don't you do something? You have some connections. So the rabbi says, sorry, he says, I'm in sales, I'm out of management. <laughs> so that's a mission of a Jew, sales. You have to sell. On the bottom of 928. And even in the lower worlds, there are none that grasp him, even though he permeates all worlds and animates them with a life force suited to each individual created being in particular. For this, for this vestment is not like that of the soul of a man, which clothes itself within his body and is grasped within it to the extent that it is affected and influenced by changes involving the body and its pain such as from blows or cold or the heat or fire and the like. The Holy One, blessed be He, however, is not affected by any of the changes of this world, from summer to winter and from day to night. As it is written, even darkness does not obscure for you, and the night illuminates like the day. For he is not grasped within the worlds at all, even though he fills them. So he contains all the worlds, he grasps all the worlds, but the worlds do not grasp him, the worlds do not affect him. He remains totally unaffected, unchanged by all of the worlds, unmoved. It's not like when we teach something. When we teach something, it affects us. There's a difference before we taught, while we're teaching, after we teach. It, 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 it affects you. Firstly, it engages your mind. Your mind is focused and concentrated on this concept. You can't think of other things. And uh, the act of, commu- of communicating, and then afterwards, it all has a ch- a changes you. You're not the same person. It affects you. But God remains unaffected. It, it's insignificant to God. It means nothing to God. It's like you used the analogy earlier, like when a person speaks, what are words in comparison to the soul? Words are nothing. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't impact you. It doesn't, uh, that's why a person could speak infinite amount of words because words, you're not investing a piece of yourself in new words. You don't have a limited amount of words inside of you and you, every time you speak, you're making a withdrawal from, from the ATM machine and you're, you're depleting your storage of words. Words are superficial to you. So that's like the, the, the light, the sun can give off light. Give off light and light and the sun is not depleted because it's not... It's, it's nothing to the sun. It makes no difference to the sun. There is light. There is no light. It doesn't add to the sun. If there is, if there isn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. It's totally superficial to you. It doesn't, you remain unaffected. You're greater than that. You're not investing yourself into it. So, too, all of creation, it's not like the body and the soul. The body and the soul, the soul is attached to the body. The body is a vessel to the soul. The body has some significance to the soul. Because the body is a vessel to the soul. The soul doesn't, is not in the stone, the soul, the soul is in the body. So the body is a vessel that could receive the soul, could express the soul, could communicate the soul, could reveal the soul. So, so the, the, the body has some significance to the soul. 
because it's a vessel, a vessel for the soul. But the world to God is not like that. God creates the world. The soul doesn't create the body. The body is a vessel to the soul. So it's like a partner. Yes, the soul is a junior partner. The body, the body is a junior partner. The body doesn't sense itself. There's no sense of ego. There's no sense of I. It's almost as if the body doesn't exist. The body is light. The body is just there to convey the soul, to communicate the soul, to express the soul. But nevertheless, the body has significance to the soul because the body is a vessel to the soul. But creation is not like that. It's not like God is the soul of the world and just like the body moves automatically. Whatever the soul wants, the body just, the body just automatically, you want to lift your hand, the hand lifts. So too, the God runs this world, God controls the world, and He runs the world like a soul runs the body. Everything is a soul, everything is God. And the soul, the body is completely nullified to the soul. So too, the world is enti- entirely nullified to God. That's not a correct analogy, as we learned earlier in chapter 6. Because the soul doesn't create the body. But God creates the world. So the world to God has no significance. It means absolutely nothing. God is not grasped and has no, has no significance. So God is not affected by the world. It means absolutely makes no difference. The God is unchanged and unaffected by the fact that He's creating the world. It's not like it occupies God. The soul is occupied by the body. That's what the soul does. It, it animates the body. It gives life to the body. The soul can't take a break and go somewhere else. The soul is occupied with your body till 180 years. But it's not like God is occupied with creation. He's engaged in creation. That's what God does. He creates world. He's busy creating world. Not he's busy. He's not occupied. It means nothing to God. It's insignificant to God. It's like we speak a word. What's one word in comparison to all the words we speak in our lifetime? Does it engage us? Does it, does it occupy us? Does it grab us? Does it, does, it, does it affect me? Does it change me? It makes no difference. Yes or no? It's insignificant. It has no significance to me. One word in comparison to my soul is, is absolutely insignificant. So too, the ability for God to create the world doesn't occupy God. doesn't engage God. It's not like God is busy creating. It's, it's an insignificant event to God. It means nothing. It makes no difference. It would create, not create. It does create, doesn't create. So that's, so that's what he means, that it's not affected by him. It's not defined by him. It doesn't affect him, doesn't change him. It makes no difference. So that's why the analogy of a body is not a good analogy. It's the closest we can get. So we use the analogy of, of, of a body and a soul. So God is. So we are the microcosm and the same as macrocosm. A God is the soul and the world is his body. Which you can learn a lot from the body-soul relationship. Because the body is totally nullified before the soul. So too the world is completely nullified before God, who is the soul, the energy. But he says that comparison is not an accurate comparison. Because the truth is, God is, transcends the body. And the body has absolutely no significance. The, the, the creation has absolutely no significance to God. But to be continued, we'll continue next week. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.